Father in heaven, bless us now as we continue to look at the book of Galatians. Uh, Lord, what an important book. And I, I imagine that if Paul could be thinking that people would have been reading this letter some 2,000 years later in little churches, he would have been amazed. So Father, may we learn the lessons that are on uh, available for us here, that are on tap for us here, and may we come away with a better understanding of who you are, of who Jesus is, of who we are, of what community is, and the world around us. Father, teach us that through this amazing ancient text is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody can join me in the book of Galatians. You'll find that in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you find Acts, then Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians. We're in the book of Galatians. Today we'll be in chapter 2. And we'll just, let me just ask you a few questions. Who was with us last week? Last week, all right. So you're the ones that are going to be right on the spot here. Uh, let me ask you this question to start with. Um, what, according to Paul, what is God's posture toward the people to whom he was writing? Does anybody remember that? We said it's a posture of blank and blank. Very good. All right. I'm glad it stuck. A posture of grace and peace. The very first thing that Paul says there when he's writing to the church there in Galatia is grace and peace to you. God's posture toward us is a posture of grace and peace. All right. Here's another one. Where is Galatia located? What would we say today? It's in the country of... Very good. In the country of Turkey. Central Turkey. Excellent. And these are the churches that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. Places like Antioch and Derby and Lystra. And Paul has now gone away from there. And word has gotten to Paul that in his absence, some people have come in behind Paul and have begun to undermine Paul's teaching. But what else? Does anybody remember? Here's a review question. Something else is on trial here. And uh, we get a strong sense of that in Galatians chapter 1. What else is being questioned? His legitimacy and his apostleship. Who remembers what the word apostle means? Very good. Sent, right? From the word post. So, so Paul is now writing back into this, into this church situation. And think, don't think 100, 200, 300 members. I mean, you're talking like, probably about like this. This might even be a little large for the church that would have been in Galatia. It could have been as little as a dozen and probably not more than three or four dozen people. Small church. Paul spent a, the better part of a year there in central Galatia. He's gone away and some people have come in behind him, undermining his message teaching another, what word do you think I might say here? Another gospel, very good. The last time we were together we talked about how that word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, literally was the word that was used in imperialist propaganda to announce good news with regards to the Caesar or to his visit somewhere or to his birthday. The word euangelion. And one of the really fascinating features of Paul's writing is that he took many of these words that were actually used in the Roman propaganda and then applied them to Jesus. It was purposeful. It was provocative. It was political. He was lifting the very language and words like justice and peace and even Lord, kurios. He lifts these words and starts applying all these words that the people in the Greco-Roman world would have been accustomed to being applied to Caesar and he starts applying them to Jesus. So for example, when he says Jesus is Lord, this idea, this idea that someone is Lord, someone is kurios, was already in common vernacular and thinking. But what Paul says, rather than that Caesar is kurios, he says 
Jesus is Lord. It was just absolutely radical, innovative, provocative. And uh, this was Paul's first letter that he ever wrote. Probably wrote it in about AD 48, not later than AD 50, and perhaps right in AD 49. All right, I think that sort of catches us up here. And we're going to start right into chapter 2. And remember, the first two chapters are largely autobiographical. In fact, for the most part, we've just been digging, oh, maybe six inches to a foot down into the text. Very easy to follow. And that's going to be the case for the first part of Galatians 2, and then right when we get to the end, when you're tempted to start feeling a little hungry and a little sleepy, um, we're going to get into the thickest part and the most important part. So let's do that together. Galatians chapter 2, and again, just as we did last week, try to imagine that you are one of those likely illiterate Galatians, right? Literacy rates in the days of Paul would have been less than 5%, and you are hearing this now. The letter has been received, and you are reading this. You are hearing this for the first time as if Paul is writing back to you. Try to enter into that experience as much as is possible. We're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says, Then, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus. That's a Greek name, Titu. I took Titus with me. So he's traveling with, a very likely, a non-Jew. And uh, where has Paul been for these last 14 years? He's been in Arabia. Very good. And we talked last time, I think. Why is it that Paul would have gone to Arabia? Yeah, he would have gone to Sinai. He would have gone back to the very foundation of the Jewish faith. We don't know for sure that he went to Sinai, but it seems likely. It seems highly likely that he would have gone back to Sinai to try and rediscover the roots of a Judaism that he has clearly now totally misunderstood. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, I am Jesus, Paul's entire world, his theology, his understanding, his sense of identity and self was turned instantly and immediately upside down. And so Paul goes on this journey, this lengthy journey that leads him, uh, among other places, to Arabia. And now we're in verse 2. He says, And I went up by revelation. He's going up to Jerusalem and communicated to them the gospel, the euangelion, which I preach among the who... The Gentiles, that is to say the non-Jewish people, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Okay, what Paul is saying here is because the question about the legitimacy of his apostleship is really, you know, under scrutiny here, Paul makes the point very clear. He says, look, I didn't even go to Jerusalem. After God revealed himself to me, I did not... I'm quoting now from chapter 1. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go and canvas people and say, hey, what do you think about my ideas? What do you think about my version of the good news? Who had taught Paul the good news? Jesus, Jesus himself. Jesus himself had taught him the good news. And so Paul says, I didn't canvas, you know, public opinion. To say, what do you guys think? No, what he did was he went to Arabia, learned the gospel from Jesus himself. And then he says, I did go up to Jerusalem after three years, but that was only for a couple weeks. And the only disciples that I saw, we're quoting now again from Galatians 1, was just James and Peter and maybe some others. He now says, after 14 years, I went back to Jerusalem. And the reason, does anybody want to hazard a guess as to why Paul is going back to Jerusalem. We haven't yet covered it, but I just wonder if anybody has an idea. Why is he going there? Okay, okay, that actually is a part of it. That's a very good, Jim, to bring a gift. There's also a, another reason. Good guess. Okay, that's also, yes, yes. The answer is yes, Reiner. You're right there on the edge of it. One of, one of the driving motivations in Paul, in his life, in his ministry, even in his psychology, we get a strong sense that this was very important to Paul, was unity. 
Paul longed for the church to be together, to be saying the same things and thinking the same things and worshiping the same God. He was very passionate about unity and disunity caused him... He knew it was anti-gospel and it just didn't sit right with him. I think we all kind of have those things that that doesn't sit right with me. So Paul makes a journey there and he's going to describe to them the ministry that he's been doing in uh, the Gentile world. He's already taken his first of four um, mission trips and so he's going back there and he says uh, in verse 2 when he says the reason I did this is um, I wanted them to hear the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles and then privately he says I talked to those that were of reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So he wants to be you know he's going back to the heartland of the of the faith and he wants to be sure that the people in Jerusalem are supportive. Now verse 3 yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Paul has gone back to Jerusalem here, and he has alerted them to the gospel that he's preaching, the things that he's saying, the things that we find, for example, in, in the book of Galatians, or the book of Romans, or the book of Ephesians. Now this is Paul early on. So his theological understanding is getting developed. It's not fully mature yet. The Paul of Galatians is on the same trajectory of the Paul of Romans, but he's not there yet. His language is not as refined. His ideas are not quite as refined. This is Paul at his very earliest and most raw. And so he sits down and he says, here's what I'm saying. What do you guys think? And obviously some people in that community were advocating for circumcision. Now, why circumcision? We should just briefly say, circumcision becomes a real hot-button issue in Galatia in large part because circumcision really encapsulated the essence of this sort of larger portfolio of what it meant to be a Jew. Right? It included things like uh, Sabbath keeping and the keeping of Torah and the keeping of various festivals and eating taboos. Circumcision was the, was the stamp. It was the indication that all of this sort of larger portfolio of Judaism was being embraced. And so what Paul says here is that when Titus heard the case that was put forward by those that were advocating for Jesus plus circumcision, he says he wasn't persuaded, and neither was I. Now we're in verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, another very important word in Pauline thinking, that we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Now, I don't want to be indelicate here, but you have to be a pretty you have to be a pretty persistent spy to ascertain whether or not someone is circumcised. <laughs> that's a, that's a, you know, how exactly does that work, right? You say, hey, I, I'm going to go over here and use the restroom. Anybody want to come with me? You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to know. And uh, so he says that these people came in and they spied out our liberty. We were living our life in a way that was regarded by many as somehow not Jewish, not in keeping with many of the Jewish strictures and particularly the Jewish taboos. And he says they came in, they sort of spied on us, they ingratiated themselves to our company to see if we were doing Judaism, doing Jesus the right way. Verse 5, how does Paul relate to these people? He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says, we listened to them, we heard them out, and we found their arguments to be entirely unpersuasive. In fact, it, it took us less than an hour to ascertain the folly of the things that they were advocating. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, but what were they advocating? And well, we're going to get into all of that. Remember, Paul is speaking here largely autobiographically, setting up where he's going. Right? And uh, remember, once again, we're all listening into one side of the phone conversation. And insofar as it's possible, we're trying to understand what was happening on the other end. 
Okay, and so it's actually fairly easy in the book of Galatians, um, more so than, say, in either of the Corinthians. Uh, so now we're in verse 6. It says, But from those who seemed to be something, these are those that were of reputation, whatever they were, he says, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism uh, to any man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Nothing to my understanding of the gospel. And that makes a lot of sense because, again, where had Jesus learned his version of the gospel from? Or, pardon me. Where had Paul? I gave it away. Where had Paul learned his version of the gospel from? From Jesus. So when Paul sits down with these people that are advocating for Jesus plus, he says it took us less than an hour to hear them out and to say, yeah, sorry, none of what you have on offer, I, what you're selling, I'm not buying Right? And he says, even Titus, who was a Greek. Now, Titus had some skin in the game, let's be honest, right? Literally some skin in the game. He had a dog in that race, right? Like, he's, he's really hoping that the stronger, more robust theology does not require circumcision, right? And he says, uh, in fact, it didn't. Now, maybe just a brief word on that. One of the reasons that circumcision was important and one of the reasons that Paul's ministry was being undermined there in Galatia is that when Paul left, what appears to be the case is that some people have come in after Paul and suggested that Paul was trying to ingratiate himself to the Gentile believers, and so he didn't say some hard truths that might be difficult for them to hear, including but not limited to circumcision. So this is why Paul says, I'm not trying to please men. I'm, not out to, I'm here to please God and God only. But the charge against Paul has been that he's a bit of a people pleaser. He doesn't sound like a people pleaser in Galatians 1 when he says, you know what, I could wish that they were accursed. In fact, a little bit later, Paul's going to say something that if I said, I might actually get fired. Paul's going to say, if these guys are so zealous about circumcision, I could wish that when they're doing their cutting, they would cut the whole thing off. Like, if they're passionate about cutting a little bit off, just if that gets you a little bit holy, well, if you cut the whole thing off, maybe that gets you all the way holy. Right? Not the kind of thing that I would say, but the kind of thing that Paul says. He's fired up, he's stirred up, and he's very... I think it's safe to say he's angry, he's indignant. Well, why so? He's just labored in a given field, a very difficult field, met people, ministered to them, in many cases baptized them, and then has left, and now he's getting reports that his message and his ministry and his apostleship is being undermined in his absence. He's not going to write a Hallmark card back into that situation. right? He's, he's really fired up. Now we're in verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcision had been communicated, committed to me, as was the gospel for the as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, and uh, this is a really really great reference to the fact that when when Ananias, you might remember when uh, in Acts chapter nine, when Paul has just been stricken with blindness, and then God appears to Ananias and says. I have a, a vessel, a chosen vessel for me over here. And he says his name is Saul. And when Ananias figures out who he is, he says, I don't think I'm the guy for that errand. I've heard about this guy. This guy's wreaking havoc on the churches. He's a real troublemaker. And then God says to him, no, he's a chosen vessel for me to bear my name among the Gentiles. So Paul here would have been aware that strangely, I think initially it might seem strangely, but as we reflect on it, it actually makes a lot of sense that Paul, a devout Pharisee and Jew, was actually commissioned by God to take the gospel to the non-Jewish peoples. Now, can anybody think why Paul might have been a person that would be, in the eyes of God, qualified for that role? Because at first it strikes you as a little counterintuitive, like Paul, who knew Judaism inside out, who was a Pharisee. You'd think if you were going to send him somewhere, you'd send him to his people. And yet he gets sent to the Gentiles. Anybody just have some quick preliminary 
guesses as to why Paul might have been, in the eyes of God, the right person for that job? Okay, now that's one, maybe that has less to do with Paul and it has to do with the fact that the people that were Jewish were afraid of him. Okay, I like that. Anybody else? He was a Roman citizen. Okay, excellent. So he was a Roman citizen. We know that. We know he was fluent in the Greek language. That's helpful. What city was he from? Yeah, he was from the city of Tarsus. And if you're at all familiar with sort of the, the geography of Tarsus, where it's located, and the, the industry of Tarsus, what was Paul's... What was his line of work? Very likely, well, he was a tent maker, and very likely this was a family business, right? It was very common in these days that you did what your father did, and your father did what his father did, and his father did what his father did. And so, who buys tents? Do Jews, are Jews the only people that buy tents? No. Now, everybody buys tents. And so, get this picture in your mind's eye that Paul of Tarsus, who's a Roman citizen, but also a devout Jew, would have been very comfortable having people come into his family tent shop, he's meeting different kinds of people, Roman soldiers and various travelers from all over, including, but not especially Jews. And so Paul was conversant, not only literally in the language of the Greeks, but Paul knew how to operate in different circles. Now we know this because in other places Paul will expressly say, when I'm with the weak, I behave as weak. When I'm with those that are under law, as under the law. When I'm with those that are without the law, I know how to behave like that too. But even here we get this great little insight that God saw something in Paul that uniquely and wonderfully qualified him to be a communicator of the gospel to non-Jewish people, also Jewish people, but to take the message quite unlike, in fact, if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts has um, 28 chapters, is that right? 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And the first about 10 of those chapters is basically centered around Peter and Jerusalem and the Twelve. But after you get to Acts chapter 13, it's primarily Pauline. We move away from Peter. We move to Paul. We're no longer really in Jerusalem except for Acts 15. We're all the way around the larger Mediterranean world. And we hear less and less about the Twelve. And so the book of Acts is actually divided into sort of the first third is Peter, the Twelve, Jerusalem, and the latter two-thirds is Paul, the greater Mediterranean world, and the church, the Gentile church. Okay? So Paul here says that the ministry of of the Gentiles to the non-Jewish peoples had been committed to me in the same way that Peter had been preached, uh, uh, commissioned to preach to the Gentiles, verse nine, or the Jews, verse 9. And when James and Cephas, that is to say Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that, that gr the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, this is great. So several things happening here. First of all, Paul says, we sat down with some people. They tried to persuade us about the circumcision thing. It didn't even take us an hour to ascertain, remember, this is all taking place in Jerusalem, that we weren't going to add that. Some people, by the way, just as a, as a side point here, some people believe that this meeting that Paul is describing here is none other than the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. I don't think that's probably the case, but, but some people think this is, he's actually describing the Jerusalem Council here, where people sit down together and they try to figure out, okay, just how Jewish does a Gentile believer have to be in order to be a follower of the Jewish Messiah? That was the big question. right? Because up to this point, Judaism was a cultural phenomenon, it was a religious phenomenon, it was a linguistic phenomenon, and Jesus, of course, was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. The Jews lived largely, not entirely, but largely in a certain area. And the idea now that a non-Jewish person could come and join what was up to that point almost exclusively a Jewish movement was 
kind of hard for the Jews to get their minds around. And the initial, and I think frankly, you know, reasonable idea that they had was, well, if those people are going to become followers of the Jewish Messiah, they're going to have to become, they're going to have to become Jews. They're going to, at some level, they're going to have to become Jewish people. And Paul said, no. No, no, not at all, in fact. And so this great question of, well, if a non-Jewish person is going to be a follower and a believer of the Jewish Messiah, how Jewish do they have to become? And Paul's answer is, not at all. Not at all. And this is extremely destabilizing to the Jewish people whose whole identity was wrapped around their culture, their heritage, their religion, their sense of identity. Okay, so Paul says when he sat down and explained this to James, the brother of Jesus, and to Peter, and they heard out Paul, what did they do? He actually tells you there what they did. He says they shook our hand. You know, they, they reached out, babe, give me a handshake here. They reached out, they extended to us the right hand of fellowship and said, good for you. Now, we don't know what the level of sincerity is here. We do know that even the church in Jerusalem, even after the Jerusalem Council, will have some concerns and reservations about the ministry of Paul because he was frankly a provocative and controversial figure. It might have been that part of that willingness to shake the hand and send him off was just kind of to get rid of him. Because he was, he was a different kind of fella, right? And a, a lot of the people that were in the ear of Peter and James were suggesting that Paul was dangerous, that he was somehow undermining Judaism, he was undermining Moses, he was undermining Torah, and he was a threat even to the nation. Okay, But we don't know that at this point yet. What we do know is that Paul says, as he's relating to the story to the church in Galatia, when I did finally make my way up to Jerusalem and I sat down with those fellas, they extended to me the right hand of fellowship and they said, hey, great, keep preaching. Keep doing more of what you're doing. And Paul's going to go on a second, a much wider journey throughout all the way over to Macedonia and Greece, getting close to Italy even, and then he's going to make a third journey, almost the same, the repeat of the second. So when they said, hey, go do your thing, Paul's like, that's what I was waiting for. He felt that he had the unity, he felt that he had the support, and now he could go peripatetically out around the larger Mediterranean world and preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. Okay, now verse 9, uh, verse 10, excuse me. They desired only that we would remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So in that handshake, they said, hey, Paul, in your travels, in your journeys, in your preaching, make sure you remember the poor. Jesus often oriented himself to the poor. And Paul says, I was so happy they said that because that's how I was wired too. I was wired to look to those that were on the fringes of society, those that were the outsiders, the outcasts, looking in. And so there was this camaraderie of heart. Okay, now everything seems to be well, but then we come to verse 11, and this is where things start to heat up a little bit. They'll become very hot by the time we get oh, down to about verse 15, but it's going to heat up here a bit. Verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, Paul is going to relate a story, a, a quite an embarrassing and a problematic story that occurred between him and Peter. And he's telling a story about something that happened in Antioch, which raises the question, why is Paul telling this story? Galatia is a long ways from Antioch. Why is Paul telling them this story? Well, you could say that he's just saying it to sort of, you know, throw Peter under the bus, so to speak, and elevate himself and his own apostleship. Unlikely. The reason that Paul is going to tell the story on Peter that he does is that Peter's actions were very similar to what was happening in Galatia, and Peter's actions actually communicated something about the euangelion, 
communicated something about the gospel. So come with me on this journey. Actually, just before we do that, remember this. Just about 50 miles to the north of Jerusalem was where this, the, the town of Antioch was. There, it's, it can get confusing because there's Antioch in Syria and there's Antioch north of Jerusalem. By the way, this was because these towns were named after Antiochus, and so it wasn't uncommon to have lots of places named you know, Antioch. And so there's Antioch up in Syria. That's not what we're talking about here, where Paul was. The, the church in Antioch was the church where, in Acts chapter 11, it says that some people from Cyprus and Cyrene had gone there and preached not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And when Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem to go up there, he walked into that room and he couldn't believe what he saw. He saw a whole room, a whole house full of non-Jewish followers of Jesus. He couldn't believe it. And he said, I know exactly the person who I need to show this to. And he traveled just up around the northeastern quarter of the Mediterranean there to Tarsus. He went and found Saul and said, Saul, I got something you got to see. Come with me. Saul says, what is it? He said, trust me on this. Saul by this point was back from Arabia. He says, come on, I got to show you something. Brings him back down to Antioch. Paul walks in and saw the same thing that Barnabas saw. By the way, in the book of Acts chapter 11, it says, when Barnabas saw that, he was glad. And then he went and found Saul, and he brings him in there, and Saul looks, and as the Australians would say, the penny dropped for Saul, Paul. He now knew what his mission was going to be, and he spent more than a year there with Barnabas ministering to this congregation in Antioch. Okay. By the way, this is we mentioned this last Sabbath. This is where they were first called what in Antioch? They were first called Christians in Antioch, and I told you last Sabbath, why, were, why did they call them Christians? Because they couldn't call them Jews. They had to call them something, so they called them literally devotees of the Messiah, Christianoi. And so they were like, well, we don't quite know what these people are. We don't know really what to do with them. Well, at some point, Peter himself, I mean, Peter, Peter who walked on water, Peter who was one of the disciples of Jesus, Peter who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter who was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Peter at some point traveled up to Antioch to have a look for himself. Because the reports had come back from Barnabas and perhaps others that had traveled to and fro. And so Peter makes his way up. And when Peter goes in, he sees something that was beautiful to him in the same way it was beautiful to Barnabas and Saul. Paul, he saw lar a largely Gentile congregation, but there were also some Jews there. And he saw that they were observing and eating and spending time together in ways that were very unlike what would happen down in Jerusalem. Okay, now Paul is going to tell a story. It's going to sound a little bit like he's throwing Peter under the bus, but we're going to see why he tells this story. Okay, so we're still there in verse 11. Now, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Why? What had he done wrong? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, that is to say from Jerusalem, Peter would eat with the who? The Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Okay, get the picture in your mind here. After the ministry of Barnabas and, and Paul in Antioch, as Paul's teaching and preaching the gospel that he had learned from Jesus, and he's had 14 years to ruminate on this, he taught them that God is no respecter of persons and that the way that we get, listen to this very carefully, the way that we get access to the family of God, or let's be even more precise, the way that we get access to the table of God is through Jesus the Messiah. Amen. That's basically the punchline. How, how do we get access to the table of God. How do we get access to the family of God? And Paul was emphatic about this point. It was through the Messiah Jesus, through his faithfulness, 
through what he had accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was a beautiful thing. And you had this incredible community there of people that, that prior to Jesus would have never sat down to eat with one another. Now let's just pause on that. If you come over to my house and eat, or I come over to your house and eat, I don't check your sort of ethnicity. I'm not like, okay, where are you from? Tell me about your parents. You know what? I, I don't care. Uh, you're, you're a human being and you're an American. And a lot of these taboos, or you're a Canadian. I would even have a Canadian at my table. Um, a lot of these taboos about eating today, they're, they're, they don't really even exist. But think like civil rights time. Think, pre, think Jim Crow. And you're inviting, you're, you're say, a, a, a white family, and you're inviting a black family into your home. Or the, the reverse. Say you're a black family, and you've invited a white people into your home. I mean, it would have been like, uh... In the ancient world, this idea of sitting down to eat with people was an instantaneous equalizer. And it makes a lot of sense, too, right? Like, if, if you're sitting at the same table, sharing the same food, that's an act of intimacy. That's an act of trust. That's an act of connection. To eat food... The other day, I was on a flight. I was on a flight, and I got upgraded to first class, which happens occasionally, and I was pretty happy about it. And my... Uh, Bernice, actually, had baked up some really good cookies. And you remember, you put some of the cookies in the bag, and they were amazing cookies. And uh, I was sitting next to this lady who I was like, well, I can't just sit here and eat all these cookies myself. So I offered her one. And she was like, no, no, I don't, I don't want one of your cookies. I was like, hey, you want some homemade cookies? She shut me down. And, and fair enough. Like, if somebody just offers you cookies on a plane, maybe not. But I would probably take a homemade cookie. But the idea here is, is it's like, I don't know you. I don't know who made these cookies. I don't know about the cleanliness of your kitchen. I'm not going to eat your food. Because eating someone else's food is an act of trust. Are you with me? It's an act of commonality. Like, if I sit down at your table, and you come into my home, and I come into your home, and we're, oh, hey, pass me the jam, and you know, you're doing all of this, and it's a, it's a big, messy, fun affair. And it's an, it's an affair that often occurs within the context of, like, tomorrow I'm shooting a wedding, right? I, I, one of my things that I love to do is photography, and so I'm shooting a wedding tomorrow. What happens after weddings? Receptions. And what do you do? You eat. You sit down to eat to sort of solemnize and ratify the, the wedding. Right? We all sit together. And so, here's what's happening. In, oh man, I'm having so much fun because this is going to get so cool. Do, somebody remember with me, we'll come back to this in just a second. Somebody remember with me, what was like the central critique of the religious leaders of Jesus' day about Jesus? This guy receives sinners and eats with them. He's eating with the wrong people. And that act of eating is the equalizer. Right? And it's, it's, you're, you're sharing meals and germs and touching. And, and remember, they came to Jesus on one occasion and said, Why doesn't your master wash his hands? He's like, he could be touching the wrong kinds of people. He could be sitting in places where the wrong kind of people had sat. He could be using cups and utensils that the wrong kind of people have used. And this is when Jesus famously said, it's not what goes into a man that contaminates him, but what comes out of a person. Right? All the evil and the unkindness and the cruelty and the meanness, that's what contaminates, not what goes in. Okay, now here's the point. So this idea, Paul had taken this idea that it's okay to eat with the wrong people, and he had he basically normalized it. And so when Peter came, he saw Jews and Gentiles sitting together in tables. Imagine a church fellowship hall. And they're all there. They're sitting and they're eating. And Peter's like, well, hey, why not? So Peter goes in and sits down at the table of some, you know, Gentile believers there. And so what do you do for work? And oh, how long have you been here? And they're, 
They're doing the thing that you do at a table. You're, oh man, have you, have you tried this hummus? Oh, try this. Put a little spite. You know, they're talking. They're eating. They're Okay, right up until something happens. And what does Paul say happens? Some people came from James, i.e. from Jerusalem. Okay, so in other words, some, some in Australia, they shorten everything. They don't, like to, they don't like to use unnecessary syllables. And so they don't, for example, you don't go to university, you go to uni. Right? And you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, you're a Sevi. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know Gene? Oh, yeah, I know Gene is a great guy. See a Sevi? Oh, yeah, Sevi. Okay. And then if you're like a really serious Seventh-day Adventist, like you're really conservative and you take your religion very seriously, you're called a heavy Sevi. <laughs> right? It's not a reference to your size or to your weight. It's a reference to your de devotion. So I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Robin, is he a Sevi? Oh, yeah, heavy Sevi. Heavy Sevi. So the people that showed up from Jerusalem were heavy Sevis. Okay, these, they, these people came from James, they showed up, and, and Peter sees them coming, he immediately, they walk into the fellowship hall, and Peter then, what is, what's the word that Paul uses there? He says he what? He separated or he withdrew himself. Okay, now, it's very unlikely that Peter would have said, Oh, you guys are icky Gentiles, I gotta go. No, all that he would have done is he would have politely excused himself. Right? Because the heavy savvies have come in, they've occupied a table there in the room wherever they were meeting, and they're all sitting together, and they're, now this is key, they're almost certainly speaking Aramaic. The people in the room there, the Gentile speaking people, they don't know Aramaic. Aramaic is a Semitic language. We've all been in those situations where you are one of just maybe a few people who don't know a language that's being spoken all around you. How do you feel when people are all around you, all, you're all speaking English or whatever the language is, and then they all switch into another language that you and maybe a couple others don't know? How do you feel? You're an outsider. And what do you immediately assume? They're talking about you, right? I've had that experience, by the way, in Violetta's family that speaks Romanian. So, so, so Peter politely excuses himself, says, oh, so sorry, fellas, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll catch up next time, I, I gotta go. And then he goes over and he sits down with the Jews, right? It all would have looked fine and nice, and then there's Aramaic here, and there's laughter, and then other Jews in the room, Paul says, everybody else in the room picked it up too. Look at the very next verse. Everybody else in the room picks up what's happening as well. Uh, we're in verse, what, 14? Or verse 13. The rest of the Jews in that room also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas, and you can sense Paul's particularly annoyed at this, because Barnabas was his traveling companion and who should have known better, but he was a Jew, that's a Jewish name. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So notice he uses the word hypocrite and hypocrisy here. The root word of hypocrite or hypocrisy is um, actor. Can I borrow this? You've seen these old... Uh, um, you know, the, 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 the masks that they used to use back in, you know, ancient theater, Greek theater, they have a little stick and a little mask, and they could have different masks so that, you know, they didn't have the makeup and CGI that they have today. So you'd put up the villain mask, you know, and then you might put up, you know, just somebody. So this guy, and that, that, that act of doing that was called uh, Hippocrates. It was, it was called putting on a mask. Right? Pretending to be somebody that you're not. And that idea, that, that idea that you're pretending to be what you aren't is the way that we talk about now actors. Hypocrites. Somebody that's playing a part. Okay, so when, when Peter politely excused himself and went over and sat down at the table of the heavy sevies, oh yeah, yeah, man, it's good. And they're talking about heavy sevy things. And I've seen this again and again and again. 
again and again and again and again in Seventh-day Adventist churches where visitors come and they're all in the corner. Oh man, general conference, union, tithe reversion. Just like, what in the world? You might as well be, you know, I mean, nobody knows what you're talking about. And the, the Sevis don't care. They don't care if nobody else understands because they're their own little tribe, right? And that's what's happening here. And then other Jews in the room notice what Peter has done. And Peter's a leader. And this is a great lesson about leadership. Peter might not have intended to lead everybody in that room astray, but he did anyway. He chose the easy path, the path because he was afraid. He actually says he was afraid of the, what these people would think to see Peter so easily, freely, you know, conversantly hanging out with non-Jewish people. And so Peter politely excuses himself just in time to go sit down with the heavy sevies, whoo, dodged a bullet there so as to not be seen. Well, the problem is, is that everybody else in the room follows Peter's example. And Paul looks up, including Barnabas. You can almost feel Paul wanting to spit when he says that, even Barnabas. Paul looks up and here's what he sees. Now get this picture in your mind here. What Paul sees is not the gospel. He sees all the Gentile sinners sitting over here and he sees all the heavy sevies sitting together over here and the Jews have all separated and the Gentiles are all... And how do the Gentiles feel in this situation? You're a Gentile, how do you feel? Yeah, you feel like, hey, this, I guess I don't belong in this room. I don't know that language. I don't know these people. And, and all of a sudden, you feel like an outsider, and this is why Paul tells the story. Paul is not just throwing Peter under the bus here to be a jerk or to elevate himself, because by the way, in the sort of hierarchy of first century you know, Judaism with regards to Christianity, who would have been the higher and the lower, Paul or Peter, at this point? I mean, Peter is not even close. Right? P Peter is the LeBron James of the early church, and Paul is like some bench player. Like, nobody really knows who Paul is. This is early Paul. This is not Paul that you and I know and love, Paul that's traveled all around the Mediterranean, Paul that's written Romans and Corinthians. That's not the, the, he's a fairly unknown bench player. And Peter is Peter. Peter's the LeBron James, right? He's the star of the show. And so when Paul looks up and he takes in the scene, he sees that their actions have communicated something that's not true about the gospel. The gospel is bringing people together, hearkening all the way back to that initial embryonic Abrahamic promise that in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was God's plan. And what Paul sees here is the Jews all over here and the Gentiles all over here. Okay? You with me so far so good? So now look at verse... I do this all the time. I put my Bible down somewhere. There it is. Welcome to my world. Okay, now we're, I think we're in verse what? 14? Yes. Uh, ver, uh, no, verse 14. Now watch this. Watch this so carefully. But when I saw... Paul speaking. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... Oh, I've just got to pause here. <laughs> if you just read that in isolation, and you just heard Paul saying, these people were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, what do you think, what might you think was happening there? Yeah, exactly right. Nice and loud, Gene. Preaching something incorrect. Yeah, you would think that they were teaching wrong things. Oh, that, that brother's not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. He's teaching wrong stuff. No. What is Paul saying happened in that room that was obfuscating or, or, or clouding the gospel? What happened? Their behavior. That's exactly right. Their actions communicated that they didn't understand or believe the gospel. And what were their actions? To separate on ethnic grounds. 
to create an us and a them. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That is clouding the truth about the gospel. Okay, let's, let's speed this up a little bit. When I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, now in my Bible, there's then quotation marks. Does everybody see that? Everybody sees the quotation marks? Find me the end of those quotation marks. Find me the end of that. Okay, nice and loud. Where is it? At the end of verse 21. At the end of verse 21. So get this in your mind. What we're about ready to read, and this is where we're going to take the excavator and go deep. What Paul says, beginning in verse 14, that quotation doesn't end until verse 21. In other words, this is what Paul said in that room. And it would have been super awkward. I mean, like, abundantly awkward. Let's just try and paint the awkwardness here a little bit. First of all, anytime you're in a room where, a, like, a public argument or confrontation breaks out, don't you suddenly feel like, oh, this is, uh, I don't like this. You've ever been to somebody's home and the, the husband and the wife start getting in an argument in front of you and you're like, so, uh, I'll just go use the restroom. You know, it's like awkward to have people arguing in front of you, right? And so, there's, that's awkward. The other element of awkwardness here is what? This is Paul the bench player calling out LeBron James. This is a total reversal. If you would have said, hey, someone in this room is going to rebuke someone else in this room of Paul and Peter, who's going to be doing the rebuking? Everybody that was in the know would have said, well, Peter will be rebuking Paul. That's the way the flow of reputation and significance and influence is going to go. So for Paul to stand up verbally, I mean, we don't know how many people were there. Let's say there were 50 people there. There could have been as many maybe 60 or 70 with the people that have arrived from James. It's a small group. Could have been as few as 25 or 30. So Paul says, <clears throat> uh, Peter, and everybody's heads are now turned to Paul. And what Paul says, beginning in verse 14, all the way to verse 21, will require some thinking. Are you ready to think in the last few minutes? Can you do it? No? I'm not sure. I don't know if I believe you. Um, I think I've got it here on the screen. Now, this word right here, I'm just going to tell you this word. This word right here, pistis, is the Greek word for faith. I, I only very rarely will ask you to know anything about the Greek language, okay? Because I don't know a lot about it myself. But this word here, pistis, means faith, okay? Or faithfulness. And this word is going to become very important in this passage. So come with me. So let's just read through it. I've got it here on the screen. So we're all reading together, okay? We're all reading together. In fact, I actually think I might have started there one verse late. So just look at verse 14 first. Go, look at verse 14. I started one verse late. <clears throat> Peter, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? That's the verse I didn't put on the screen here. Okay, question. When Paul says, Peter, if you being a Jew are living like the Gentiles, why are you asking the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's a very simple question. In the context, what had Peter just done that had communicated that he was living like a Gentile? What's the thing that was happening? Yeah, he was eating with the wrong people. Right? And I just can't emphasize this enough. This isn't about teaching yet. It's not about false doctrine. No, it's about bad behavior. Now they were just sitting down, they were sharing a meal and having a great time and yucking it up and sharing hummus and laughing and learning about one another. And as soon as the heavy sevies show up, Peter says, oh, excuse me, excuse, I just need to... And he goes over and he sits down, starts speaking another language, starts yucking it up. And we all in this room know what it's like to be like an outsider looking in. 
for various reasons. You might be an educational outsider. You might be a financial outsider. You might be a uh, you might not be a Broncos fan. <gasps> you know, maybe you're in a room full of Democrats, and then you're like, "Well, I'm a, I'm not going to say anything." Or you're in a room of Republicans, and you're like, "I'm just going to keep to myself." Right? Like we all know what it's like to feel like you're on the outside looking in. And so when Paul speaks up, he says, Hey, Peter, how come if you, a Jew, are behaving like a Gentile... Again, I'm going to ask one more time. What was he doing that was behaving like a Gentile? He was eating with the Gentiles. He says, how come you're compelling these Gentiles to try and live like Jews? Now we're on the screen here together. We're on the screen together. Let's go through this together. We, notice what Paul does here. The inclusive, us, we. This is still all a part of that same rebuke. That same awkward moment. Peter, we who are Jews by nature, what does that mean, Jews by nature? Born that way, descendants of Abraham. Ethnic Jews. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now this is not strong enough. This is actually quite weak. Anybody else have another translation here? In verse 15, sinners of the Gentiles. If you don't have it, it's okay. Sinful Gentiles, like the Gentiles. The word here actually, the literal Greek word means lesser breeds. How does, that, how does that sit? Does that feel good to you? Like literally the phrase is lesser breeds. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. Lesser breeds. Yeah, yeah. So Paul says to Peter, Peter, we who are Jews by nature and not these lesser breeds, why do you think Paul would say that? His tongue is so firmly in his cheek he is, he is clearly putting the strongest possible construction on it to say, why are you treating these people like they're less than? These lesser breeds? He, remember what Jesus said when the Syrophoenician woman came out and said, hey, my daughter, my daughter is grievously ill. And, and what did Jesus say? He said, I'm, not sent, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not, not to the dogs. Jesus, when he said that, it's like, ooh, that's uncomfortable. I don't like that at all. Jesus was purposely giving voice to the prejudice of the disciples. They're dogs. They're, the Jewish people viewed the non-Jewish people as only barely human. So he literally uses the term here, lesser breeds, to say, to, to, to draw attention to his point. Hey, come on, Peter, you and I who are Jews by nature and not these lesser breeds, we know that a man is not justified by the works of law. Now that word law, every time you see the word law in the New Testament, and especially in the writings of Paul, do not think Ten Commandments. Think Torah. That's the Old Testament. That's the writings of Moses. We know, Peter, that a man is not declared to be in the family of God, at the table of God, in right standing with God, on the basis of Torah, but by... Pistus Yesu Christu, by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And remember, the word Christ is not like the name Asherik, right, or, or Crowley. It's not a last name, it's a title, it's the Messiah. So he says, we know that a man is not declared to be in the family of God, at the table of God, in right standing with God, on the basis of Torah, but on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ the Messiah that we might be justified by faith in the Messiah. Pistis Christu. Faith in Christ. So far so good? Now watch where he goes with this. And not by the works of Torah. For by the works of Torah, no flesh will be justified. Nobody will get access to the family of God or the table of God through Torah. But, now Paul is saying this all to Peter because Peter knows better. 
Let me just remind you that this very same Peter that just separated himself to go hang out with the heavy sevies is the same Peter that back in Acts chapter 10 had the vision of the sheet that came down three times and God said, rise Peter, kill and eat. And what did Peter say? I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then in Acts chapter 11, he went, or Acts chapter 10, he went into Cornelius' house and he's like, oh, ah, God has shown me, this isn't about camel sandwiches and bat burgers. God has shown me I should not call any person unclean. There's not icky people and bad people and subhuman people and lesser breeds. We're all one and the same. That's a decade before this. So here's my question. Does Peter know the right, does Peter know the right thing to do? Yes. But he didn't do the right thing because of peer pressure. Question. Have you ever known the right thing to do and then not done it because of peer pressure? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know what I tell my sons? There's two kinds of people in the world. Thermometers and thermostats. Thermostats merely tell the temperature. They, 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 they tell you the ambient temperature. You know what a thermostat does? Sets the temperature. Do you know what Peter did when he excused himself from the table of the Gentiles and went over and sat down with the heavy tables? The heavy sevies? He, he was a thermostat. He set a tone. The problem was is that the tone he set was all the wrong kind of tone. All the wrong kind of tone. Right? And so he's excused himself here. Peter should have known better, but he was under pressure, social pressure. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, if on this journey, while we seek to be right with God in Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Now, this is a little complicated for some people. Some people are like, I don't understand that. And you'll hear some expositors of Galatians and some people that are trying to tell you what Galatians is mean. They're saying, what this means is, if in trying to be a follower of Jesus, you sometimes sin, that means you're still saved. That is not what Paul is... That's not even in the conversation here. The conversation is all about who's it okay to eat with. Right? I'm going to ask you again. I told you I would circle back to this. What was the central critique of Jesus by the religious leaders of his day? He ate with sinners. Ate with sinners. And what's the, what's, the, what's the implication of that? If Jesus is eating with sinners, he... You got it. He is a sinner. You say, he is, he's behaving like a sinner. Remember what Simon said at his feast? If he knew what kind of a woman this was that was doing this to his feet, he wouldn't let her do that. What's the implication here? There's something a little sultry going on, a little less than savory, right? And so this is what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, if, look, if in our attempt to sit down at the table of God, people call us sinners, does that mean that we're, we're ministers of sin? He is saying here by implication, well, I mean, Jesus wasn't a sinner and that was the accusation against him. That's why he says, certainly not. Okay, look at this. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgression. Now, this is slightly complicated. So what Paul is saying here is, if I build, if I erect something, right? If I erect something that had formerly been destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. See if you can give me the right answer to this question. What was the thing that Peter was erecting by implication when he went down and sat with the Jewish people? A wall. What, what, was, what was the wall? The law, the, 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 law was, the wall was the law. It was Torah. It was basically saying, if you want to be at the cool kids' table, if you want to sit with those that are really members of the family of God, you need to keep Torah including but not limited to circumcision. And here's the problem. This is such a cool thing that Paul does here. Can I borrow this piece of paper? So here's what Paul is saying. Paul says if we erect a sign, a sign or a, a, a wall that says Jews only, Gentiles keep out. Right? And so we're showing that to everybody. Only Jews, 
Gentiles keep out. Now, can those Gentiles come and sit at this table? No. Oh, yeah, they can. But what are they going to have to do if they want to sit at this table? Uh, They've got to become Jews. You see how that works? So, so here's what Paul says. If we're going to use Torah as a way to keep people out, Paul says when we erect the sign that on the front says Jews only, Gentiles keep out, guess what the back of the sign says? The back of the sign says, and this is what Paul's going to say, you also have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, Paul's, here's what Paul's saying. You haven't kept Torah either. So if you're going to use Torah as a way to keep certain people out and certain people in on the basis of fidelity to Torah, the back of the sign says you also have been a transgressor. See how that works? Look, read it again. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, the walls of partition built, built into Torah, I make myself a transgressor because I haven't kept Torah. The back of the sign says, yeah, how about you, buddy? For I through the Torah to the Torah that I might live to God. Now that is a sentence that no Seventh-day Adventist has any hope of understanding if they think that what Paul means is the Ten Commandment Law. And I have heard some valiant attempts to explain this text from Seventh-day Adventist preachers and expositors, and they say, yeah, 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 so what this is saying is, I, through the Ten Commandments, died to the Ten Commandments that I might live to God. Okay, come again? What? What are you, what are you even talking about? No, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I had to go back to my own religion. I had to go back to my own faith. I had to go back to Torah. This is what was happening in Arabia. When Paul went back to Torah, do you know what he learned? He had to die to his old Pharisaical, Jewish, Judeo-centric way of reading Torah. He realized that the point of the point of Scripture, the Old Testament, the point of Torah, was not to elevate Israel, it was to elevate Jesus the Messiah. Amen. That's what he's saying. He says, I through the Torah died to my old way of reading Torah so that I might live to the, to the real, to, the, to God's way, the Christocentric way of reading Torah. So far so good? And then the verse of Scripture that you all know and love, I, Paul again, remember, still saying all this to Peter, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by pistis, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness comes through Torah, then what is Jesus doing on the cross? Okay, now I just looked at my timer and realized, wow, my enthusiasm's gotten me carried away here. I've been going 55 minutes. Okay, so let me just quickly explain to you one small thing, and I'll wrap this up in four minutes. Every time that we've quoted pistis here in the New King James Version, this has been in a specific grammatical construction. Now, this is slightly technical, but just it'll make sense. This is all in what's called the objective genitive. Genitive just means possessive. Okay? So, objective genitive means my faith in the object. Okay? Like, she is a woman of talent. Right? Uh, of is the, is the genitive here. She possesses talent. This is a box of Kleenex. Right? It's a box that possesses Kleenex. So, so in this objective genitive, it's saying, I have faith in Jesus, and that becomes the, the sort of grounding of my standing with Him. That's how I get access to the family of God. And that's not, I mean, that's better than Torah. But let me show you something extremely cool. Over the last about two decades, a number of Pauline scholars have said, hey, wait a minute, we think that this is the wrong way to read this. We think that this should not be translated in the objective genitive, but in what's called the subjective genitive. Now, I'm going to read you a translation here that renders that exact same passage of Scripture in the subjective genitive, and you tell me if it makes a difference. Okay, here it is. This is the very same thing that we just read. Paul stands up to rebuke Peter, <clears throat> clears his throat. Hey, Peter, how come you, being a Jew, 
live like the Gentiles, but now you want the Gentiles to live like Jews. Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not these Gentile sinners, lesser breeds, we know that a person is not declared righteous by the works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. This is, is there a difference there? This is why we too have believed in the Messiah Jesus, because of his faithfulness. So that we might be declared righteous on the basis of what? The Messiah's faithfulness. Faithfulness to what, by the way? Messiah's faithfulness to? To Torah. He perfectly kept Torah. Jesus kept Torah. He said, I do always those things that please him. Jesus never committed a sin. He loved the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, and soul, and he loved his neighbor as himself. That's perfect Torah keeping. So he says, so that we might be declared righteous on the basis of the Messiah's faithfulness to Torah and not on the basis of the works of the Jewish law. Hey, Peter, on that basis, you see, no creature will be declared righteous. Well, if in seeking to be declared righteous, well then, if in seeking to be declared righteous in the Messiah, we ourselves are found to be sinners, does that make the Messiah an agent of sin? What's the answer to that question? No, he also ate with the wrong people. If I build up once more the things that I tore down, i.e. non-Christ-centered Judaism, I demonstrate that I am a lawbreaker because the back of the sign says, well, you haven't kept Torah either. Let me explain it like this. Through the Torah, I died to the Torah so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with the Messiah. And how is that possible? Because he's the representative. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He's the one that did it. You didn't do it. That's his point. He did it. He kept Torah. You have not kept Torah. He was perfectly faithful to the covenant. You have not been. And so he says, I have been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive. But it isn't me. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life that I do still now live in the flesh bodily, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't, Peter, I don't set aside God's grace. If righteousness comes through Torah then what's Jesus doing hanging on the cross? So far, so good? And that closes chapter 2. It closes chapter 2, and, and Paul never tells us what happened there, you know, what Peter said. I mean, that would have been, a, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that situation. But I want you just to get the basic takeaway, and I'm going to summarize it in two seconds. Two minutes. How do we get access to the table of God? How do we get access to the family of God? There's two answers to this. One is... Jesus plus Torah. That's one answer. That's the answer that the people that followed after Paul were giving in Galatia. The other answer to how do we get to the table of God, to the family of God, is Jesus. Jesus' faithfulness. He was the Messiah. He kept covenant. Is it Jesus plus? Or is it Jesus. And the reason Paul tells this story is not to throw Peter under the bus, but to show that what we believe has practical application as to how we treat others. We might say with our mouths, oh yeah, we're all the family of God, but do our actions communicate that we believe what we claim to believe? If you would have given Peter a test, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a, you would have given him a piece of paper and a test, he would have gotten 100%. Peter knew all the right answers, but he didn't behave in harmony with those answers because of the cultural pressure, the peer pressure, the arrival of the heavy sevies, the fear of the Jews. And so Peter acquiesced to a less than ideal, less than gospel situation, and Paul called him out for it. When we come back next week, 
we will be through Galatians 3, and we'll talk about where does Paul go from here. The autobiographical section of the letter is largely done, and where Paul's going to go in Galatians chapter 3 is absolutely amazing, but we'll save that for next week. Just by a raising of hands, who here wants to say with me, given these two options of Jesus plus anything, or Jesus and His faithfulness. Who wants to say with me, I'll take Jesus and His faithfulness versus Jesus plus something. Amen. Alright, sorry that was a little long. I lost track of time. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you so much. Help us to live in the light of your love. Help us to understand the good news of the gospel that doesn't just connect us to you vertically. It connects us to those around us horizontally. And Father, help us to live the gospel. Not just to believe it. Not just to get the right answers on the test, but to live the gospel in the way that we treat others, the way we interact with others, the way we, we relate to others, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.